0: This is the Customer
1: Equity Accelerator, a weekly show for marketing executives who need to accelerate customer-centric thinking and digital maturity. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe of Ambition Data. This show features innovative guests who share quick wins on how to improve your bottom line while creating happier, more valuable customers. Ready to accelerate? Let's go! Welcome, everyone. Today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about a particular tool in the MarTech space. And there is an awful lot of noise in this space. I think at last count, I saw something like 1,700 different tools. And the volume just keeps exploding. Now, generally speaking, I don't think there's a whole lot of value in most of the MarTech tools out there. I don't think they do you any favors. They silo your data. They don't play well with others. But today, we're going to talk about one that is particularly worth your time and attention. And today, we're going to talk about Zodiac Metrics. To help me discuss why this tool makes sense for customer-centric companies is Zodiac's founder and CEO, Artem Marichin. Artem is a former hedge fund investor turned entrepreneur. Artem, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Alison. Thanks so much for having me today.
1: Artem, tell us a little bit more about your background. It's not every day I talk to someone who was active in the hedge fund environment and is now an entrepreneur. Tell us how you got there.
0: Yeah, happy to. As Kenny mentioned, I began my career in the hedge fund world and also spent some time on the private equity side. And During that period, I was a generalist investor and looking really at consumer companies, financial services, energy. And what I really focused on at the core was really understanding the fundamental unit economics of a business, what makes a company sustainable, actually able to generate kind of long-run returns and profitability, very similar to the type of investing that Warren Buffett is known for, value investing. And what was always really fascinating to me was that when you went down to the core of a business and try to understand is this good or not? We really care about is, it. in fact, that even economics. So, as an example, if you looked at a restaurant a chain or a quick service restaurant like a Chipotle or a Burger King, really wanted to understand was when I build one location, what does that cost me? How much is it going to return on that individual level? And then, going from that individual restaurant, you can understand what is the company worth as a whole. Mm-hmm. Similarly, when you looked at a financial services company, you would try to understand how much does a loan generate in profitability? What might that default loss be on it? And let me go from that single loan to an overall company and portfolio. I see this all the time on The Profit. Every time
1: I watch that show, he gets right into the unit economics before he makes an investment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But then when you looked at consumer companies and kind of retail business in particular, that kind of data sophistication understanding of unit economics just wasn't there. It might seem challenging to think through, well, if you're Macy's or another retail chain, what is your fundamental unit? And it turns out it's the customer. And as a result, you really want to care about in all of these businesses is a topic that you you speak to a lot, really customer lifetime value. And the more we kind of thought about this, the more it became clear that there was really this opportunity to take a very data-driven approach in bringing customer lifetime value to all of these organizations. And that's really what helped me transition overall from kind of that hedge fund path to entrepreneurship.
1: That must have been super compelling to make that transition. It's not every day you make that kind of major transition.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Now, what made it really easier, and it was the co-founders that I had with me, so as opposed to just leaving finance and doing this for myself, I went back to professors that I really respected, in particular Peter Fader of uh, the Warren School. Mm -hmm. I know he was on your show, I believe, in the previous podcast, but his background, as, as you pointed out, was really around developing customer lifetime value models for a multitude of decades, and it became very well-known, but that research just wasn't broadly available commercially. And it made a lot of sense after connecting with him and discussing the opportunity to really take a lot of that core academic work and bring it to market for the first time. And that's really what led to the founding of Zodiac a couple of years ago.
1: Ah, that makes sense. Now, Pete was episode number nine, and in that episode, we talked a lot about the value you can get out of using CLV, but we didn't talk about the formula itself. Would you take a minute and just walk the audience through a little bit of what is in a CLV formula, what's in a correct formula, how does it typically shape up, and maybe a couple things they should watch out for?
0: Yeah, so customer Lifetime Value, kind of in the most basic sense, you can think of it as What is all of the profit that a customer is going to generate for a firm from that very first transaction until they churn from the brand and choose never to come back? And it's a very simple concept, but there's a lot of challenges to it. And the first is that in advance, you don't actually know what is that profit going to be. You don't know it when you acquire a customer. You don't know it at any point in your relationship. And so customer lifetime value at a core is really a prediction problem. And as a well, result, you know, there's there's a few typical aspects. And so what an organization really wants to care about is how do you figure out what this net present value is and what does this future cash flow stream look like? And to do that, what you really want to be able to understand is for you know, each and every customer, how long is their relationship with the firm going to last? Is it someone that's going to churn very quickly, maybe after one transaction, or someone that's going to be a recurring customer for a very long time? How many purchases are they going to make over that time period of that relationship? And then what's the basket size that the average spend that's going to occur every time they do? And a good CLV formula is going to take all these metrics into account and be able to predict at the individual level, each of those aspects. Now, the challenge that oftentimes comes up, the first is mistaking historical value or what a customer has done to date with lifetime value. An example of that is oftentimes you'll hear companies talking about, in the first year, we expect a customer to spend this much. And the way they arrive at that is they look historically, we've acquired a cohort of customers, what did they spend in that first year? And that's the number we'll use. The problem with that is for your very best customers, a year isn't very long. They're likely to remain with you for three years, five years, maybe decades, depending on the type of business. And if you cut it off arbitrarily at a year, you're actually not capturing the full value that a customer is going to create. Mm -hmm. That's one.
1: So the time horizon is too
0: short. Precisely. The other piece kind of tied to that is from the first action until they churn. But if you've awarded a customer months ago or years ago, what they've spent in the past doesn't really affects your business anymore. It's, it's sunk. And, you know, at every point of this result, when you think about what is a customer worth, you care about what they're going to do just going forward. And at yeah that's what we call the remaining lifetime value. And it's an important concept to understand as well, because if you're an acquisition marketer, you really are capturing the entire value stream from that very first transaction. But if you're in retention or retargeting within an organization, you don't truly about what customers done already that's happened you've already Mm -hmm. captured that profit you really care about what are they going to do going forward and how can you choose the best customers that way
1: got it got it now that sounds a little bit like you've got your crystal ball and i can picture a gypsy in a tent here where you're guessing with some level of sophistication at what a customer will do in the future how much can people trust this model or trust what will happen
0: Yes, it's a great question, and, and I think it's one of the things that P Zodiac we talk about a lot. That it's important to hold all the models accountable in a very rigorous way, and the best way to do that is what statisticians will refer to a back test or a validation. And the way that that's typically done really before you put any model into practice, whether it's CLV or any other type of data science model the company might be considering using, is you want to measure its accuracy. And so, in the CLV context, what you'll tend to do is you'll Select, let's say you have a million customers over a two-year time period. Let's take the model and let's fit it to the first year for a subset of those customers. So we'll take the first year of data for 500,000 customers. And then we're going to look at two pieces. For those 500 customers, we're going to make a prediction as of the end of that first year for what do we expect to happen in that second year. And because we actually have that data, we can compare versus that second year and see were we right or not. And what we care about is not just being right in aggregate. That's great, but that's not really what we care about because we care about customer lifetime value. We care are we accurate at the granular level. For all the customers that have transacted once, how many times did we expect them to transact and how many times did they transact? For those that transacted four times, same type of question. And then the other piece of that you want to look at is we built the model on the first half of the customers, 500,000. But when you acquire a new customer, that remaining set that we didn't use, are we accurate there? So from that first transaction, we make a forecast for that new customer. And again, what actually happened versus what do we predict? And as you start looking at these types of historical validations, you look at them, you have accuracy over three month periods, six month periods, 12 month forecast periods, you start to get comfort in the model and you can actually start using it to make business decisions at that point.
1: I see. I see. So since you do this for so many different organizations, do you see certain trends across the organization, things that hold true?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So there's definitely a few kind of generalities. I want to be careful and saying this, because each business is unique. And so I wouldn't want anybody listening to the podcast to assume that this is absolutely going to be true for their organization. But a couple of comments that I'd like to make. So the first that's most common is that there is something pretty similar to an 80-20 rule for most businesses, to the Pareto principle.
1: I laugh because we see that all the time anyways in analytics. And it's just amazing that here it is yet again.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And the way that it manifests itself here is that for most organizations, if you line up all of their customers, best to worst, and you take the top 20%, they're generally going to be responsible for 80% of the value to the firm. And what's fascinating about that is that means even in a retail business, something where you might have millions of customers and you think everyone's about the same, is that there's actually a tremendous amount of revenue and profit concentration. Um, And you need to actually think about that if you're running the organization, because those other remaining 80%, yes, they're certainly helping with fixed cost absorption, and making sure that you have store traffic and all that, but they're not necessarily generating the value to your firm. So that 80-20 piece is oftentimes true. And you know, depending on the business, it might be actually a little bit more or less concentrated. So typically, luxury retailers or those that have higher price point products tend to be closer to 90-10, whereas more mass market companies, somebody like Walmart, tends to have a little bit more homogeneous customer base. So it might be 60-40, for example.
1: Wow, that high.
0: Yeah, And that's still you know, pretty, pretty similar. And then on another kind of example that we'll oftentimes see, and this is almost unfortunate for organizations, but each incremental customer you acquire, you know, the customers that you're acquiring this quarter compared to last quarter, tend to be a little bit worse. And the customers you acquired last quarter compared to a year before that, again, a little bit worse. So, over time, you tend to have a slightly lower value customer. And there's a few reasons for this. The first is that you actually acquired a lot of your best customers early on in the life of your firm. Those were the ones that were really attracted to the brand promise, the brand core. They found you, they liked the service. And at that point, you're starting to expand a little bit away into somewhat of these lower value segments. So there's just not that many best customers out there. And then, of course, the other pieces are that you have more competition. And if you're also a successful business, you're likely growing. And as you grow, you're increasing your acquisition spend. And so you just naturally have this kind of diminishing return on that. And so that's something that brands should really be aware of as well.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I'm surprised that so many of your best customers are your initial customers, but in a way, it kind of gives you, uh, it kind of echoes the first mover advantage and other things that we see in startup
0: spaces. Yeah, it's interesting. You bring up startups here because although this kind of example is really, it's true for all organizations, it actually you know, makes a lot of sense for in the startup context as well. And to paint that analogy, if you're a seed stage startup and you first just begin, you really don't have much to spend on paid acquisition. So a lot of your customers are word of mouth, friends and family, referral, and those are they're certainly cheap to acquire. They're oftentimes free, and because they're so close to the founders and maybe one degree of separation, they're really good customers. They like the service. That's probably why the founders start in the first place. And then we see over and over as these organizations become successful, they'll go and raise series A funding, series B funding, and the obvious use of capital there is to put into paid acquisition. So they start to expand into digital channels and they assume the customer that they were acquiring before is what the customer is always going to look like. And that's not at all the case. And as soon as they turn on this paid acquisition channel, like the lifetime value oftentimes drops. We've seen it drop by 50% quarter over quarter as soon as they go into these channels. And that's really, yeah, and it's, Super important to keep that in mind because if you're a company that assumes lifetime value stays the same and it drops by 50%, all of your operating assumptions are going to be wrong. Your inventory, your financial forecast, your headcount growth plans. And so if you're not measuring lifetime value on this granular level over time, by segment, by channel, by customer, ultimately, you can really make a mistake and hurt the business.
1: No kidding. Okay, let's say that obviously I'm a convert of CLV marketing, but let's talk a little bit more about what companies can get from this process. So let's say that they roll out a model. What are some examples or applications that you've seen them use the information for?
0: Yeah, and I think before going into a specific example, just to kind of highlight why we even care about this in the first place. And at the end of the day, marketing departments are oftentimes going to have a very fixed budget that they can allocate. And they need to determine how do we allocate that. So first it might be, do I put it into acquisition or customer development or retention? And then if you're in one of those departments within acquisition, for example, it might be, what channels do I put it in? Is it Facebook, first page search? versus maybe direct mail. And then if you're running Facebook, how do you target customers? So in all of these examples, what you care about is how to actually allocate these dollars to where it's going to drive the biggest return?
1: Now, and now hang on, because a lot of people would say, oh, that sounds like a media mix model. How is it different than a media mix model or an attribution model?
0: Yeah, so for a few reasons, and I wouldn't say that attribution or media mix has no place in marketing, far from it, but one piece that attribution tends to really miss is that you're giving credit for an individual transaction or for acquiring customers. So one thing you're not really understanding is you get this transaction, but what is the value associated with it? Because for example, if you acquire a customer and it costs you a hundred dollars to acquire that customer and that transaction generated $50 in the gross profit for the organization, you actually lost money. Mm-hmm. And The only way you actually can make money in that organization is if that customer is going to come back and spend more. So you don't want to attribute the transaction. You want to attribute the entire value of the customer that's being created. Mm -hmm. It's kind of one piece. The second is that actually, again, if you're on the attribution side and you're spending money, let's say, for example, you send people the discount and it causes them to come back and you're attributing that transaction to the email, that discount associated to it you're actually missing the point of whether that transaction would have happened otherwise at full price. And so you're not really looking at the incremental value that's being created, which is another reason that, again, COV is so important because it provides you an expectation of what would happen under the current status quo. And then as you take other actions, what's the incremental lift about that? And the most broad study I've seen on this was actually put together by McKinsey where they said organizations globally are spending a trillion dollars in marketing and from all of the studies and cases that McKinsey had done, that on kind of analytics, every time they've tried to reallocate the budget in marketing, whether it was lifetime value based or even kind of attribution based, they saw return on marketing go up by the 10, 20%. And so they estimated that there could be at least $200 billion in value that could be created through better really targeting and analytics. And that's at the macro side. And you ask, what are we seeing at Zodiac and kind of a specific reliant path? And it's actually precisely that and oftentimes significantly higher results. And a couple of really quick examples, you know, the first and kind of most common is on the digital channels, but through targeting in Facebook, for example, where the way organizations do it today is they'll create their creative and their advertising, and then they'll go and they'll choose, do we want to show this to a demographic-based audience or maybe geography-based what we think are really smart segmentation suggests, and mm-hmm. instead you can actually do what's known as a lookalike audience, where you provide to Facebook a list of who you think your highest value customers are, and really just say, help me find more like them, show my advertisements to those. And doing A/B testing and comparisons of what the results companies used to see versus what they're seeing doing this lookalike audience, we've seen ROI improvements of two, three hundred percent, um, which is Exactly. It's amazingly powerful. And it sounds so simple and almost unbelievable, but when you see this over and over, we really have a lot of confidence that that's the case. And Facebook tends to be the best performing channel for a lot of these organizations, partially for this reason.
1: Amazing. Now, I know you can do that kind of look alike modeling on Google as well. Have you seen that yet? Have you seen any similar performance between the two?
0: We have. So, Google's kind of the equivalent to Google Customer Match. Mm-hmm. And you can use that both for acquisition for retargeting. It can, really, it's a little bit more challenging for organizations to get to do this properly on Google. Facebook makes it really, really easy, so that's oftentimes the first place to start. But more and more, Google is also taking this path towards customer-centric marketing and helping organizations target better. So we've seen some of the results, but you know, first place the companies will get started will be on the Facebook side.
1: I see. I see. Okay. Any other cases of ROI that you want to point out that you feel like it's not just in the retargeting of the online online world? Have you seen it happen offline as well?
0: So One example we'll talk about is that Dress Barn, which is part of the Senior Retail Group and one of our clients, but They had a really interesting case study that we had with them with catalog mailers, which is really typical for a lot of retail brands, although I think it's become less popular in the past couple of years, but it's a pretty high cost tactic. A mailer might cost 50 cents a dollar per mailer, which if you have hundreds of thousands or millions of customers is a pretty large marketing outlay. Now, companies find it pretty efficient, which is why they still do it, but it is expensive. TrustBarn, as an organization that's been doing this for years, had a variety of response models that they were using, targeting methodologies, whether they were RFM-based or based on other historical purchases or segmentation. And what they ended up testing was a Zodiac metric on what's the chance that a customer is actually going to transact in the next six months. Really, this kind of probability of activity, which is very linked to lifetime value. And what they found is that customers that had a low probability of transacting, even if you sent them the mailer, they didn't actually come back and they were wasting money on those mailers. But for customers that had this high probability were loyal, valuable customers, they actually came back more than expected, spent more. And oftentimes they didn't even use the coupon from that mailer. Hmm. And when they set up an an A-B test and tested all of this, they found that they were actually saving about 15% on the mailer, which this one kind of example was a, few million dollars in savings to them annually that they could then reinvest into other parts of the business.
1: And, you know, what's interesting is they save that on the first mailing, but they save it on all future mailings too. you know, in the same concept of future lifetime value. So how long were they or how long would they have been doing this imprecise marketing? You could almost stretch that out to say, you know, if it was five years worth, maybe it's more like $10 million that they would have spent that they've reallocated.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's back to my past life in finance. But if you're thinking they're now having a $2 million incremental annuity and kind of tax adjust that, that's sort the tens of millions of dollars of value to the company, really from something that sounds as simple as let me just change who I'm mailing these to, not even the creative or anything else.
1: Amazing. Amazing. But most marketers don't think in those terms. They think volume, quantity, and just get the transaction. They aren't thinking in an annuity or a lifetime model. When the switch happens, when the light goes on, is it one of those aha moments that suddenly somebody goes, oh, or do they just kind of gradually get it? You
0: know, it's interesting, Alison. We definitely... In organizations where there's this aha moment, they you need to get it. And oftentimes, where that ends up happening is in pretty senior levels in the organization. So, at the VP level, or those where the marketer isn't just responsible for a channel but has broad oversight of the budget or really interacts closely with finance and is understanding of these net present value type topics. When you are kind of within a channel and your responsibility is, let me have as many customers come through Facebook. It definitely is a little bit more gradual because you really need to show that actually having this CLV-driven targeting gets you better results and actually helps you as a Facebook marketer reach your goals better. And so for them, it's definitely a bit more of a gradual process where we find what works the best are you you start kind of these small wins at the ground level where you show this ROI of using the same creative, you're now making 300% higher ROI. And that's when they get excited, and that's when they start kind of this organic process of let me convince everybody else on my team. Mm-hmm. But those large aha moments oftentimes happen, you know, more top down.
1: Very nice. Okay, so let's say that I'm convinced and I want to get started with CLV marketing. How would I get started? What would be the steps I'd run through? So you think.
0: Of course, for any company, we'd love for them to come and talk to us at Zodiac. But more generally, let's step that aside and kind of walk through what we typically see from a change management perspective. And the first, I think we talked about this already, is you need to actually have a CLV model and get comfortable with it. How do you actually trust this? And that goes and goes back to evaluating the historic fit and you know, maybe you have a data science team internally that could do with an organization maybe use an outside vendor but first and foremost can you have a model you're comfortable with the second and i think we were just starting to talk about this is relating to small wins can you actually test this model on a campaign whether it's facebook or physical mail or google but something where you can actually run an A-B test and see what are the incremental results that this is driving in the organization. So you start gaining that additional evidence. You have that targeting. Once you have that, you can, first of all, start going to other teams within the company and kind of getting them to sign up. But the other piece is you don't want this data to be siloed within one group or one team or within the data science team. So you want to start integrating lifetime value into other tools. So let me take that and put it into a DMP to use within the digital channels on kind of your ad tech tools So let me put it within my CRM and or within my customer data platform so I can use it for email targeting and segmentation and everything else that I might be using. So you want this data to be within the broader ecosystem available to the company. And then once you really have all of that and you have those case studies, you can start working in the organization. And what we see is that the use case is spent to sprint, so you might start with the Facebook team, and as soon as the paid search team sees that they're seeing much better results, they want to use that data. And then from the acquisition team, it might shift over to the email team on the retargeting side, and then the customer service team might get excited. And it, We do see this kind of organic movement within organizations to start using this because at the end of the day, everyone cares about you know, driving better performance in the organization.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, full disclosure, we use the Zodiac tool and we have found it to be very, very similar process to what you just outlined in that the ability to take that information and integrate it across the organization into other places so that people have that fundamental knowledge to use, whether it's a, a label of who is what value or whether it's a score, it doesn't matter. It's just it needs to be surfaced so that everyone can drive by it. And it gives a really nice basis for that unit economics that you talked about in the beginning.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Data hidden away somewhere doesn't create any value. Data needs to be actionable and it needs to be front and center and people need to be you know, seeing it and using it.
1: Exactly. And don't we all love that idea? <laughs> in a sense, you know, when we all started in this industry decades ago now, that was the fundamental concept of the internet, right? Was it, Information wants to be free. And here we are yet again at the same 20, 30 years later, whatever it is, the same idea that the information needs to flow. And when you have that basis of what is the right information, it just makes it all the more powerful because now you're not flowing noise, you're flowing signal, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. So you know that you can actually act on and really drive results.
1: Excellent. All right, Artem, what's the best way for people to reach you if they have follow up questions? You know, maybe they want a demo of Zodiac Metrics, they want to understand a little more. How can they get in touch?
0: The easiest way would still be through email, so I can be reached at artem at zodiacmetrics.com. That's A R T E M at zodiacmetrics.com, and that can really just be about customer centricity. CLV it doesn't even have to be related to Zodiac itself. Or on LinkedIn, you can find me as well. And if you are interested in learning about Zodiac or seeing that demo, best place would be on our website, which is just zodiacmetrics.com.
1: Excellent. Excellent. So let's summarize a little bit. We talked in this episode a little bit about why should I care about CLV? We talked about the precision of the model. And I especially like what you said in the beginning, Artem, about the customer is the unit basis for value. All organizations really line back up to this core valuation. And the correct calculation of CLV is really what gives us that sense of lifetime value. And that's because CLV isn't a history problem. It's a prediction problem. So we want to really understand how long will the customers stay and how much will they purchase. It's almost like that future annuity aspect that Artem alluded to earlier on in the conversation, how finance people think about it. So we want to think about not just the past, we want to think about what they do going forward. And in order to be accurate, you need to have back-tested, accurate models to do that, whether you do that from your own CLV modeling or whether you use a tool that helps you do it like Zodiac. Second, we talked about the kind of impact that you can get. And the McKinsey model targeted about 20% through better targeting and improvement, and that's a hell of a number for most organizations. We talked about Facebook and Google being great places to start, particularly around acquisition, that maybe Facebook was a little bit easier to start. And when you do this, most organizations are looking at results in terms of millions of dollars reallocated, of better spend, and that can translate all the way into whether it's acquisition or it can translate down into win-back models, getting customers to come back and buy again. So the third part of what you should do next, we talked about the ability to get comfortable with the model. And I cannot emphasize that. That enough you've got to have people who trust the data who bless the model internally you can't just stand up a tool and be like okay here it is people have to believe in it just like any other data set and then look at the small wins that you can pick up as your initial proof cases that's a classic we always talk about that and then how can you integrate or how can you share that information across the organization to get the broader spread of adoption Artem did I miss anything
0: yeah, I think that was uh, very thorough.
1: Okay, good, good. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to have you.
0: Likewise, Allison. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Excellent. So remember, everyone, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It's not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can use to get results. Thanks, everyone. You for joining today's show. This is Allison. Just a few things before you head out. Every Friday, I put together a short bulleted list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. I actually call this email The Signal. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics. Or people and companies I think are doing amazing work building customer equity. If you'd like to receive this nugget of goodness each week, you can sign up at ambitiondata.com and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoy The Signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.